Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 21, Family Matters. When last we were together, Philip had created the League of Corinth in the aftermath at the Battle of Chaeronea. The new league bound the city-states of Greece to Philip personally, making Macedonia the major power in all of Greece. Philip had decisively beaten the Athenian and Theban forces, and now there was no one left willing to oppose him. With matters in Greece now dealt with, as well as the Fourth Sacred War, remember that? And the Athenian and Theban War, Philip returned to Macedonia to put his house in order. You see, success for Philip didn't necessarily translate to success for Macedonia. With Philip's ascendance into the premier man of Greece, the Macedonian aristocracy was not pleased. In Macedonia, the kings did not have divine authority. The king and the aristocracy operated in a first-among-equals relationship. Philip's control over Greece now challenged that notion. Philip was not blind to this issue and sought ways to alleviate the growing concerns of his aristocracy. So, Philip did what he did best. He did some political maneuvering. Philip decided he would marry again, but this time, he married a Macedonian bride. Now I know what you're wondering. Didn't Philip already marry a Macedonian bride? Yes and no. One of the first marriages had been to a bride of upper royal Macedonian stock. After Philip's defeat of Bardilus back in 358, Philip had reunited the split halves of upper Macedonia and lower Macedonia. But Philip had never married a lower Macedonian. And now, with things being a little precarious at home, he played the card. And it worked. This marriage relaxed the aristocracy, and Philip was married for the seventh time. Philip's new bride was a young woman in her 20s named Cleopatra. Her father had died when she was young, and she had been the ward of her uncle Attalus. Attalus was one of the many lower Macedonian aristocrats who were beginning to feel uneasy about Philip's rising influence, and so the marriage alliance greatly pleased him. Once again, Philip was an astute political chess player. Philip's right-hand and left-hand men, Parmenian and Antipater, had daughters of marriageable age, but he could not be seen to favor them even more than he already had. Also, marrying one's daughter but not the other would be seen as Philip favoring one or the other. Philip would instead marry into a prominent but non-influential aristocratic family. Philip is once again playing a shrewd political game. Other sources claim that Philip fell in love with the younger woman, and that was the reason for the marriage. But that was the same narrative that was spun when Philip married Olympias, Alexander's mother. Personally, I lean towards it being a political arrangement. Philip had plenty of lovers, both male and female, and he could easily indulge in an affair as opposed to a marriage which would open up the doors of power for the men in her life, namely Cleopatra's uncle Attalus. In any event, it was now time for another royal marriage, this time held at the capital at Pella. From what we know of the marriage celebration, everyone had a good time at the beautiful outdoor wedding, and the groomsmen and bridesmaids were dressed to the nines, and the vows recited were beautiful and caused many tears. In all seriousness, though, we don't have many details about the wedding ceremony itself, but the lack of sources can indicate to us at least that everything went fairly standard itself. Then, we arrived at the drinking party, 
after the marriage feast. At the drinking party, referred to as the symposium, is where things begin to escalate. You see, the symposium is essentially the frat house dream party. Everyone gets super drunk, and the women at the parties were the fun types, if you catch my drift. Noble women were not allowed at the symposiums, and typically, the only women there would be courtesans and dancers and pourers of wine. Usually they were one and the same. And there would be handsome young men for those who were so inclined. So, the drinks are flowing, everyone's having a grand old time, discussing whatever the in vogue topic is, and someone somewhere is in the room debating philosophy, flexing their Socrates and Plato. It's a vibe. You know how it goes. Suddenly, Adelis, the uncle of the newly married Cleopatra, raises his wine cup. He's pretty inebriated at this point. But he decides it's time for a toast. With his cup raised, he prays to the gods and says, May the gods grant a lawful successor to the kingdom. Now, if you're unsure if that's an inflammatory statement or not, Alexander may have some choice words for you. Alexander was roughly 19 years old at this point, and he was the heir presumptive at this point. He stood an excellent chance of being acclaimed king. But he did have an older brother, who was definitely not capable of ruling in his own right, and more importantly, a cousin, Amenitus, whose father Perdiccas had been king before Philip. To Alexander, he read into this comment as a direct attack on a status, and his mother Olympias was a foreigner from Epirus, and Alexander, in his mind, was the lawful successor. This remark infuriated Alexander, and he threw his cup at Attalus, saying, What am I then, a bastard? This was a tense moment, and Philip, who may or may not have heard what Attalus said, took his new father's in law's side and demanded that Alexander apologize. This was an even more tense moment, for now, Alexander, who had just been insulted in front of many of the most prominent aristocrats of Macedonia, would have to apologize to the very person who insulted him. Alexander refused to apologize to Attalus, and this upset Philip greatly, who was apparently so angry he drew his sword and began to roar towards his son. But as he ran, he tripped over his own feet, which was probably for the best. Alexander, also very drunk, most likely exclaimed to those all watching, which at this point must have been everyone in the room, saying, look men, here is the man who would cross from Europe to Asia, and he is upset, attempting to cross from one couch to another. It's a pretty ruthless condemnation of his father, making fun of Philip's plans to invade Persia. And Alexander most likely realized it was a step too far, and made a hasty retreat from the symposium. In the aftermath of the fight, no one comes away looking good at this. In slight defense to Attalus, Philip's six other marriages had been to forward brides. Maybe all the drinking had caused Attalus to lose the ability to carefully construct what he meant to say. Or, perhaps the alcohol caused him to reveal a sentiment that many others may have been feeling. A tension under the surface that caused Philip to marry Cleopatra in the first place. Alexander's anger at Attalus's comment makes sense. The double whammy of being called a bastard and insulting his mother would rightfully upset anyone. And even his rejection of making an apology makes sense. To apologize in front of everyone after being insulted does not reflect well on Alexander. Where he crosses the line is insulting his father after his father tripped. 
lastly, we have Philip. It's the king's job to ensure there is harmony and concord at the symposium. It's iffy to me whether or not he heard Atlas's remark and only saw Alexander's response to it, but getting drunk, grabbing your sword, and running at your son and tripping over your own feet is not a good look for the king. It just has like a trashy reality TV feeling to me, like the real Housewives of Beverly Hill. In the aftermath, Alexander may have been drunk, but he wasn't stupid. He fled from Macedonia immediately that night, taking his mother with him. They went to Epirus, and then Alexander left his mother there and made his way towards the Illyrians. Alexander fleeing to the Illyrians put a wrench to Philip's plans of invading Persia. The Illyrians and Thracians had a tense relationship with Philip, the relationship being built on Philip's overwhelming army. Philip's heir, taking refuge in Illyria, was enough to worry him. If he left for Persia without securing his borders, a monumental mess could be made. The Illyrians taking Alexander was enough of a reason for Philip to launch a punitive campaign into Illyria. Philip may have been planning to do this anyway, but it's hard to tell. The details for this punitive campaign are sparse, with only one ancient source writing about it, that source being Diodorus Siculus. He says that Philip faced off against the Illyrian king Pleurus and defeated him, but one of his bodyguards, Pausanias, died defending Philip, who may have been injured in the fighting. A few episodes ago, I told a similar story about a bodyguard dying in battle to defend Philip. These two events may be the same event, recorded separately by different sources, that were written from the future. It makes more sense to me that this event happened now, in 336 BC, rather than back in the 340s BC, and hopefully, my reason will make sense to you down the line. And we'll get back to the subject just very, very soon. It wasn't just the Illyrians that Philip now had to be wary of. Olympias' return to Epirus was because her brother was now the king. Olympias' brother, also named Alexander, was now in a tough position. Alexander had been part of Philip's court from 350 to 341. He had been taken as a political hostage and as a threat to the current Epirote king at the time. Atlas' insult had reverberating consequences Philip needed to deal with, because Olympias was now actively attempting to get her brother to declare war against Philip. This was a bad move on several lovers, because Alexander would be forced to either stand up to Philip through military action, or do nothing, and be severely politically damaged by this. Alexander and Olympias both knew that armed conflict was not a good idea, but Olympias advocated for it anyways. I guess the statement, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, holds true here. King Alexander was stuck in a lose-lose situation. He knew firsthand that his army was no match for the Macedonian army, but he had no choice. Once again, though, Philip found a diplomatic solution to solve the problem. In a move that I can only categorize as done as a politically savvy and spite-filled action all in one, Philip offered his daughter Cleopatra in marriage to Alexander. Cleopatra was the daughter of Philip and Olympias, and she was the only full-blooded sibling of Alexander and she was brother-related niece to Alexander, her uncle. Sweet home Alabama style. No offense to any listeners from the fine state of Alabama. Alexander gratefully accepted the marriage alliance as this move avoided war, 
And importantly, it was probably a coded fuck you to Olympias. Philip now had what he wanted. Peace in Greece, and peace with the Illyrian and Thracian tribes. Philip's dream of a Persian campaign could now begin. And in 336, it did begin. Philip sent an advanced force of 10,000 men led by Attalus and Parmenian. This force was fully equipped and armed straight out of Philip's pocket. The western coast of the Persian Empire was lined with Greek coastal settlements, which Philip assumed would join the Macedonian side after the invasion began. This was also the perfect time for an invasion. Greece was unified and at peace, and more importantly, the Persian Empire was in a state of chaos. Their response time to Philip would be slow and hesitant, giving Philip time to concentrate his forces and the advance guard time to establish a beachhead. It was around this time that Philip received a visitor from Corinth, a friend of his name Demaratus. They got together and began catching up, and Philip began asking about the state of affairs in Greece, asking if the Greeks were getting along. Demaratus basically gave him a pretty good wake-up call essentially telling him not to worry about Greece when things weren't even going well in his own household. It's nice to see Philip has some friends who are willing to tell him the truth, even if he doesn't want to hear it. Philip got the message and sent Demaratus to get Alexander back from Illyria, which he successfully did. Things were different, though, when Alexander did return. Philip had been busy since Alexander left, appointing Attalus as one of the military commanders of the advanced force, and the marriage between Alexander of Epirus and his niece Cleopatra had not been the only marriage brokered. Philip had also married his eldest daughter Kainane to his nephew Aminitus. So now, two first cousins are getting married. It's on some Charles Darwin type of behavior here. And now, Alexander's elder brother Aridius was getting married. Alexander was deeply paranoid at this point, and so he began to interfere with Philip's plan to marry his older son. Philip was attempting another strategic alliance. The bride-to-be was from the Persian Empire in a region called Caria, in the southwest of the Persian Empire, along the coast. And her mother was a man named Pixadarus. Caria had just seen political instability a few years ago, in which Pixadarus was able to seize power. The instability back at the Persian court would eventually settle down, at which point Pixadarus would be dealt with. Seeking to avoid this, Pixadarus had offered his daughter's hand to Philip's eldest son. Philip's intention to invade Persia was pretty much an open secret at this point. Pixadarus sent a Greek actor in his employ to act as ambassador, a man named Aristocritus. This was excellent news for Philip. A friendly foothold in Persia would be a major blessing. Pixadarus most likely did not know that Aridius was mentally handicapped, and Philip saw a chance to make some political usage out of his son. At this point, Alexander was egged on by his friends and his mother that this indicated that Philip had rescinded his favor to Alexander. This prompted Alexander to send his own messenger to Pixadarus which claimed his daughter should marry Alexander himself. This broke off negotiations with Pixadarus and Philip, the former now being unsure of the political situation in Macedonia, and he would eventually make peace with the Persian king. 
This incident caused Philip to lose it at Alexandria once again, and rightfully so. Royal marriages were the prerogative of the king. Philip had lost his chance to make a marriage tie with a friendly Persian region and marry Aridaeus. Philip had five of Alexander's friends exiled from Macedonia, the most important of these friends being Ptolemy, the future pharaoh of Egypt. We'll get into that eventually. Still, Philip calmed down and continued on because there was a large festival coming up that would be held at the old capital of Agai. This would be a festival for the ages. They spared no expense for lavish trappings, and many important dignitaries would be in attendance. Finally, the wedding between Alexander of Epirus and Cleopatra would be held, and in the festivities that followed, an actor began to critique the flaws of the Persian king, who said it would soon be Persia that would be overturned. It's a bit on the nose, but I'm sure Philip appreciated it. Then, it was the next day when the games would begin. People were excited, so they began to fill the theater early before any of the pomp and ceremony began. Large statues of the Olympian gods began their journey through the streets and into the theater, with apparently a large statue of Philip trailing behind at a respectful distance. Philip began his journey into the theater. He was accompanied by his son and his nephew. Cheering throngs of people could be heard, and Philip was wearing a special outfit of all white, looking especially drippy. Philip sent Alexander and Amenitus in first. This was Philip's moment to shine. Philip's bodyguards were far away from him, and he wanted to show that he could walk anywhere due to the goodwill of his people. The cheering continued on. Philip's limp was slowing him down, but his limp was a symbol of pride. He had been injured back in battle, and it was a sign of his courage and bravery. And half of Philip's vision was obscured. He had only one eye since an arrow had taken his sight at the Siege of Methoni in 354. In many ways, this was the culmination of all of Philip's effort since he had become king 23 years ago in 359. He was now 46, young enough for one last great campaign in the east to Persia. The thought of it must have put a smile on his face. Philip entered the theater to roaring applause and loud cheering. Philip was basking it all in, enjoying his moment of attention. And so, he never saw the knife coming. In an instant, one of Philip's bodyguards ran towards Philip and stabbed him underneath the ribs. And Philip was dead before he even hit the ground. The crowd went silent. Everyone was shocked into silence and processing what they had just seen. Philip's assassin immediately took off running out of the theater. Some of Philip's bodyguards snapped out of their shock and chased after the killer. But the killer had too much of a head start, and there was a horse tied up ahead. It would seem the killer would escape, except he didn't. Despite the head start, during the chase, the killer had tripped, and while he was scrambling to get up, the bodyguards caught up and killed him. They turned the body over and took a look at the killer's face. It was Pausanias of Orestes. Now I know you're probably going, who is that? Let me break it down for you. Pausanias of Orestes is one of Philip's many lovers, 
But after a time, Philip grew tired of Pausanias and got himself a younger new boy toy, also named Pausanias. Pausanias of Orestes was upset by this and began slut-shaming the new lover of the king, calling him easy and putting his name in the burn book. These rumors affected the young Pausanias 2.0 and he confined in Attalus, who may have been sleeping with the boy before Philip, that he would prove his manhood in battle. His chance came when in the battle against the Illyrians, he fought hordes of Illyrians off in defense of Philip, dying in the process. I told you we'd come full circle on the story. When Attalus heard of the news of Pausanias 2.0's death, he was furious. So he devised a plan to get back at Pausanias of Orestes. Attalus invited Pausanias over to a drinking party at his place. They got him all liquored up and relaxed. Now, if graphic sexual violence makes you uncomfortable, I would skip ahead. After Pausanias was good and drunk, Attalus and the other guests began to beat Pausanias up. Then, they took turns raping him. And when they were done, Attalus gave Pausanias to his mule drivers, who also took turns raping him. Then, they just threw him out into the streets and just left him there. And it became well known what had happened to Pausanias at Atlas's home. When Pausanias came to, he went to Philip demanding justice for what had been done to him. Philip was now in a political bind because Atlas had just married into the family, and Philip did not want to involve himself in a matter he was not directly involved in, even if he was indirectly the cause. So Philip slipped it under the rug, but he gave Pausanias many gifts to silence him promoted him into the royal bodyguard. Pausanias would use that position to get his revenge, if not on Attalus, then on Philip. We'll leave it here for now. Philip murdered, and his killer also murdered. Next week's episode will be a break from the narrative, as I want to introduce the Persian Empire in all its glory. We're going to introduce it from its beginning of its inception, to the current political events in 336. Then, we'll return to the narrative. Like always, if you like what you heard, give the podcast five stars and a review. I'll have maps on Instagram, so you can see all that at pinpoint underscore history, and you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com. Also, I'm now on Twitter at historypinpoint. Someone else took the pinpoint history tag first. It is what it is. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.